consumers voice their concerns, the formulations will change. Can we dream about a world without animal cruelty? To completely turn our food industry upside down because it's not just meat, it is dairy. Because it's about shifting habits. Mm, let's get ready to rumble! Broadcasted from Silicon Valley, the most innovative spot on earth. Corporate, the place for corporate executives that transforms innovative threats into business opportunities. And now, let's get ready to rumble with the host, Tommaso. And hello, everybody, and welcome. Thanks so much for joining our episode. Today, we are going to, well, you are creating, really crafting our, our finale, grand finale for our virtual coffee, number 15. We have been running our season two throughout the entire year, um, the year of uh, 2020, uh, a very exciting. And we have this great, amazing lineup I'm very honored of three successful women entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs here that I would like to introduce Sam Shuton. Sam train, trained health coach and next-gen protein content strategist and marketer who runs the platform Green Gut Wellness. Sam, thanks for joining us. And also already a second time in our season two, um, returning guest V, V Nguyen, ESG, Sustainable and Investment Specialist, Research Director at Asia Research and Engagement. V, thank you so much for being here again. And last but not least, aus dem wunderschönen Deutschland from the beautiful Germany, Marina Schmidt. Marina, the creator and host of Red to Green Solutions, a podcast showing game-changing innovations in sustainable food. I will have the pleasure here, Tommaso, my name, to be the host and uh, uh, run the next 45 minutes. A couple of questions. I'm really intrigued already to hear your thought processes on that. And without further ado, I would like to welcome on stage slash on screen nowadays during COVID again, uh, Sam, Marina, and we. And actually, I would like to start out with Sam. Sam, you have been a long-time consumer of plant-based products and in the plant-based space for, for over a decade, which is very visionary of you. Developing content strategies and writing about food, food tech, and health, in addition to uh, past experience as a health coach. Now, question, what can you share with us in terms of your perspective on how we'll eat and live over the next decades? That's the multi-billion dollar question. Well, I've been keeping my eye on the plant-based space, especially more now that things have been really heating up and everything's been growing. Uh, with all of that, I actually launched both a newsletter and a podcast around that just because there's so much to talk about. Um, it's called The Modern Health Nerd, and that's because I am a health nerd. I, I have been a plant-based eater since 2009. I have certificate in plant-based nutrition from the P. Colin Campbell Center for Nutrition Studies. I trained as a health coach uh, at, at Bowman College and I read everything, I write about everything, and I've seen a trajectory toward, I think, two things. We have a lot of food tech going on and we also have a lot of returning to almost old school practices and a lot of interest in regenerative agriculture. 
And I think together the two are really merging in the movement towards sustainability. So I think that that as the sustainability movement as a whole is going to be a big driver of the change in how we eat over the next decade and, and further on there. We have this interesting merger of the indoor vertical farming and people who are still outdoor farming but are looking for ways to sequester carbon. They're looking for ways to make sure the soil is still healthy. And we have the people who are using the food tech to come up with these new products that are attracting a lot of people who never really would have thought about eating a plant-based diet. So I think we'll see a big influx of people who are not only just trying the plant-based products, but are coming back to it. And then hopefully these plant-based brands are going to use their platform to educate people on how to go from just being a flexitarian or a meat reducer to actually increasing their health by making further changes. So I think there's going to be this interesting merger between old school food tech thought leadership into a, a movement where people are really going to be moving toward better health that's better for them and that's better for the way that we are stewarding this planet we've been given to care for. Well, there is a lot to unpack in what you are saying, right? And 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 giving also um, what what your profession and your background is. You said you're you're now also launched a a podcast, so you become an influencer, right? You are writing about this topic. What do you think? How can we stimulate people to eat uh, lower in the food chain? What are impulses? How can we make a change together? What are you doing in this in this uh, in this area? Well, that's where I like to say I put on my health coach hat and I like to just have conversations with people. And I'm hoping that in the future, I'll be able to produce more content about this. I've had some people on my podcast already who are doing things like having classes and teaching people to make a plant-based transition. And I think that that is going to be a big deal, not just for me, but for other people in the plant-based space is that education, telling people that this doesn't have to be all or nothing. You don't have to be the level 12 vegan who vibrates through walls from day one. You can enjoy anything that you enjoy right now can be enjoyed in a plant-based way and it doesn't have to be complicated and it doesn't have to be a complete life overhaul. You can take steps and as you take steps, it's important to keep learning. And I think if people have that support, the consumers and you know, just your, we, we talk about consumers in this space, but consumers are people. They're people with lives, they're people with challenges, they're people with families, and showing them how to integrate plant-based eating, healthy eating into their lifestyle is going to be a big part of making this change. Oh, I love it, and congratulations on, on your endeavor there. Thanks so much for, for sharing this. V, I was mentioning before ES, uh, ESG, and for those maybe who are not familiar with those uh, with those uh, terms and, and abbreviation, environmental, social, um, and corporate governance, right? So based on this experience and, and responsibility you have, right? Um, what are elements of potential investments uh, in a business, right? What could you, uh, basically, what could you highlight? Uh, what are the factors, the three factors that refer for sustainability and social impact based on ESG? Well, basically, I think that first we have to, we've got to recognize that the, the whole understanding of what ESG and sustainability is, has really shifted and changed dramatically, probably within the last five to 10 years, particularly. And, um, you know, it's, it's long, hopefully long gone are the days when it's understood as it's a peripheral, it's on the side, it's a nice, it's like, you know, corporate social responsibility, it's a bit of charity giving, that kind of thing. And now it's becoming much more, the understanding is that it's, it's intrinsic to a business, 
that it's not on the periphery, but it's actually really quite essential and core to how you how you do things, your processes, uh, and and you know how you internally regulate, is going to ensure the viability, the long-term viability and sustainability of your business. And that's really what we were about is that, you know, it's about longevity and the understanding of, you know, pricing in certain risks and risks surrounding environmental uh, factors, social factors, and obviously your governance of your, your, uh, your entity or your business itself. So I think ESG is really like how I like to look at it. And from, especially from investment, my, my background is in investments is it's, it is about risk. It's about quantifying that risk. It's about taking those externalities, looking at you know, their potential impact. You may not be able to see it yet, but it will come at some stage and understanding that those resources that we use, there's an, you know, we work within all our businesses. Everything that we do as human beings, we work within ecosystems. And if any one part of those falls down, there's an interdependency. And then you know, the whole system has a tendency to break down. So therefore, it's in our best interest in order to ensure that that doesn't happen. And in all those segments, environment, social, and then the governance. And once you're able to, to price that risk, then you can, you know, you'll strategize around it. And, and risk is not just, you know, we, used to think, you, you, we have a tendency to think of risk as a cost. You know, if this is going to be risky to me, then I have to spend money in order to mitigate that. But risk is also an opportunity. And that is, uh, you know, goes back to the investment 101 is like risky will return as well, right? It goes both ways. And so I think that's, it is an opportunity, especially within the protein space, because it is moving so fast. Um, and there's so much innovation going out, um, out there at the moment, um, attacking it from many multiple areas that, you know, risk really can also become an opportunity in this space. Yeah, and often uh, uh, I, I agree absolutely that the term risk or investment is often misunderstood, right? It's investment is really mitigation of risks, right? So, uh, but nowadays, if we look back, let's say the last, uh, especially here in Silicon Valley, I'm based, you know, which is known as this, you know, VC investment world, right? You analyze assets kind of differently, right? You want to analyze assets and say what within the next period, what's the exponential growth opportunity we have within the next uh, five to six, seven, eight, let's say 10 years max, because this is what a, what a fund basically uh, uh, value is. How are you assessing the assets. I mean, what's the what's the maybe the longevity that you have? You know, you mentioned now alternative protein. Is this something that you focus on ESG? Like, give me a sense on on what are the assets that you that you that you basically take a look at, right? And 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 then the second part is is are you looking also in a long term perspective or 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 in a short term short term meaning at five you know to six seven seven years time in terms of return? I mean, I think that you, if you look at you know, valuation of any business. And from an ESG perspective, you definitely are looking into the long-term. The idea is about long-term. It is not about short-term okay. um, profiteering and it's not to talking. What we're trying to do is level out the volatility, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea is that it's better for the business and it's better for everyone and all stakeholders involved. So we are definitely long, it is a long-term proposition. It is a long, it's long-term thinking. It's long-term viability. In terms of looking at actual assets, I don't think that we, I mean, it depends, that varies from, from sector to sector, industry to sector, each, each business is very different. And when you're looking at, you know, uh, a lot of this space in protein is, you know, highly capital in, intensive or investment in R&D at the beginning, and you don't really know 
when that you know can capitalize on that when you you're going to actually turn you know there's going to be cash flow and revenue etc and that's we've seen like you know a lot of that in other sectors in industries like technology silicon valley is just you know famous for that right high valuations and you know a lot of these companies aren't even like general like generate a lot of revenue but no profit yet and yet their valuations are, are quite high so i don't i think there's still an appetite for that you know we don't we don't need concrete assets or anything like that but we need an idea that has the potential and from an esg perspective it needs to solve a problem that currently exists or stop there being you know a problem exacerbating or getting worse mm. so what we're really looking for is like you solve those issues in protein this is perfect you know sam was talking about the, the agriculture aspect of it is that land degradation arable land the amount of arable land we have is decreasing right water usage and water resources those kind of things climate change all those things are factors that affect agriculture very directly and if in protein you know the raw inputs and the feedstock that goes into the products that you are going to create in the protein space all come from that sector so as a, a company, if you can address some of that, you know, and, and we're seeing a lot of very innovative companies out there that are doing that, where they, they're creating protein, you know, out of, of resources that are abundant, that don't use land. You know, vertical farming is also a very clear, easy one. There's, you don't need land for agriculture for that, but it has other resource needs. So it's about a balancing act of all those things, and you have to take all of that into consideration. I really like your, you know, the essence here of, of the replies, because if I overlap both, right, the long-term thinking, right, and the ESG focus, then it's, it's a cultural thing. So it becomes, it doesn't become just a goal, but it becomes a company culture, right? So it needs to be lived, right? And I think also, you know, having been um, for most of my career also on the startup side and, and, and dealing with startups all day, right? The, the interactions with company that have this culture must be way more pleasant because it's mission oriented. I mean, returns are relevant, right? I mean, no doubt about it because ultimately we need to create businesses, right? But, but the fact that it's long-term and it became a culture, the mission is scored so so thanks for for allowing us to to pick your brain marina red to green solutions i love you mike by the way it's it's a, always a great sign for for a great uh, uh, podcast so i'll i'll write you a note after what you have i'm buying a new ones for my for my podcast but uh, let's go back it's to one, yeah. alternative uh, uh, protein uh, you, you are running a, and showcasing game-changing innovation in next-gen uh, protein space uh, and, and cellular agriculture in your podcast. What findings could you highlight from the recent season on cellular agriculture? Have you seen anything particularly inspiring or even mind-boiling that you would like to share today here with our audience at Virtual, uh, Virtual Coffee? Absolutely. In over eight hours of content, there were so many special insights. Um, with a team of about eight at the moment, we are creating seasons because we want to build up each episode on the next to really go deep into the topic. And we, at points of the podcast, we got really nerdy talking about the specific way that meat is produced, real meat is produced without any animal actually being involved. And I find that plant-based and cultured really work together in a shared vision to improve sustainability of our food system, but also improve the health. 
to varying degrees. My personal belief is that uh, it's important to have cultured meat because a certain part of the population is not going to be convinced by plant-based options, no matter how good and how amazing tasting they're gonna be like. Maybe in a few decades, but we don't have the time to wait for this. So the fantastic thing that we can observe right now is a whole industry being created in front of our eyes with technology that is finally maturing to a point that we, are, we have been seeing the first ever cultured meat restaurant open up. Um, we are seeing several launches, for example, by Ale, uh, by Ale Farms uh, very soon, Blue Nalo next year. And what we, what we can see is a maturing of the industry. So it started out with the big visionaries like Moza Meat and Memphis Meat. But I was very intrigued about the fact that there is there are restaurants with with seller and meat. I didn't know, right? Uh, have you guys already seen something like that around, Sam and Lee? No, no. Where is it? Yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> I just read about this recently, but it was it was like the first restaurant that's serving the cell based chicken. We don't have that around here yet, but oh, yeah, no. We were we were curiously uh, uh, discussing where is this restaurant that you mentioned ser serving the uh, the cellular what was, was it meat or chicken or what is it beef or chicken or yes uh, it is uh, by Super Meat I think it's in America or in no maybe in Tel Aviv I'm, I must check the location okay. they are serving meat based um, to do consumer testing so it's a your cultured meat well let's do the following um let's uh so do you do you do you uh, sam and v um i mean this topic is so huge so important to because it's about shifting habits shifting mindset right and it's nothing as 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 v was mentioning nothing that happens and, and sam too overnight will take a, a, a period of time, generations, right? Uh, uh, that in order for us to embrace this, this, uh, this new normal, right? Because we won't call it, we won't call it next-gen protein, right? We won't call it uh, alternative meat. It sounds strange, right? I mean, it would be just, okay, let's eat, right? It would be more, uh, it will be basically what we are going to have. But um, in order to get there, we need, in my opinion, a, a, a different form of collaboration and openness to collaborate, to learn from each other, to experiment with each other across different industries, which, which based on the current mindset, behaviors, infrastructure, based on how the industries are set up, I don't really see it. What are your thoughts on this, V, Sam? I don't know who wants to take this. I don't know. Recently, we've done some research on, like, you know, the um, the raw material end of the agricultural aspect of it, particularly within Asia. And I think that just talking from that perspective, um, our region is is so quite fragmented. You know, it's not a, a single market like the US or anything, and it's quite, but it's quite dynamic. And it's each each country, you know, functions quite differently. It has many different challenges, and definitely, you know, there's there's a call to a regional collaboration here. That would would really help the industry, but also I think that what we found is that you know the the, the smaller players at the end is usually the ones who are actually doing the crop cultivation, who don't have enough the adequate technology to to make those leaps and bounds. 
who cannot help to ensure that you know stable supply chain, and they don't have the technical capabilities. Um, and and this is where you know the players who are in the mid, the investors and, and, and the bigger firms out there, commodity players, this is where they have a role to play, which is to bring those smallholder farmers, you know, into the 21st century. I mean, it can be very, very basic like using, you know, basic digital technology, like the mobile phone, you know, your smartphones, it can change everything from payment, you know, payment systems and communications to um, tracing traceability, which is, is a huge issue within within our region and within food in general. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, what else can I say? <laughs> it's a... Oh, it's, 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 uh, uh, I, I, I agree. So basically, you know, the farmers uh, whose core business is not innovation and technology, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and maybe they don't have even the, fu the funds for that, nor the resources in terms of of people skilled for it, they need help, they need access. So, you know, you mentioned traceability, you know, blockchain, we have heard a lot of blockchain that comes in place so that you can uh, manage end-to-end -end solution, farm management becoming more digital, right? And at the end of the day, maybe even new uh, uh, supply routes, right? That, that, that create, in order to create, um, yeah, the, the alternative proteins really that are based on, on, on on, on veggies, right? Um, and, and here one aspect in order to also, uh, yeah, make this topic more important and tangible and understandable, Sam, is the topic of uh, communication. So uh, if, if you have innovation and you're not capable of expressing the value proposition in the right way, right? Uh, you know, you might have a good product, but this was it for, for many startup. It's, it's unfortunately the case, regardless in in what industry. So, what what I'm curious to to hear and and you to share with our audience. What uh, are things that you have seen, uh, mistakes that you have seen based on on you know content that are poorly done? What have you seen in terms of content strategy as pitfalls or things that are are, are simply wrong in your opinion? Well, I'd like to start out by saying that this is is not to ever point a finger at anybody because content has been king for a while and I'm sure we're all sick of hearing that, but it continues to be king. And the problem is there's a lot of content out there about making content. And a lot of it is very, is very, this is what you need to do, but no actual action steps in how to do that. So I think that what happens is people, and I've seen this with, with clients and I've just seen this in looking at what brands are doing, people think, I know I need to be doing content. So that means I need to be sending emails, I need to be on social media, I need to have a blog, but they don't really understand that everything has gotten so specific in particular, especially with social media algorithms and with Google always changing their algorithms. And now, especially with Google's got all the stuff like semantic search and their algorithms are basically now starting to almost get inside people's heads. If you've, if you've spent any time on Google, you know how like frighteningly accurate it can sometimes be now a compared to you know even a few years ago and i think the biggest issue is understanding the benefit of putting a strategy behind that i've talked to people who they have part of it they'll have a buyer's personas which is really important especially in the plant-based space because there are so many levels of plant-based there are the people who are meat reducers you've got your flexitarians you have your vegetarians you have your vegans and then you have your really hardcore like 
no sugar, no salt, no oil, plant-based vegans. You've got a lot of different people on your, on your trajectory that you may or may not target. And not every plant-based person, not every vegan is going to be your target audience. And I've seen some people who have that, they've got their journey, their buyer's journeys worked out, but they don't really have the content part worked out. And then I've seen the other way around, they've got their content, but they don't have anything in the background. And it's really important to take that time and make that investment. Content is a long game and it takes some money and it takes some time, but I think that it's so important, especially with all of these new uh, next-gen proteins coming out, with the people who are now getting into upcycling, there's gonna be more upcycled food out there, to really understand that this needs to be something that needs to be both in their budget and in their time trajectory, because that is where you're gonna create the experience for the consumer. You can, we're talking a lot about taste, texture, and price as being the big pillars, that's going to hit people at the point of sale when they're hungry, when they're thinking, what do I want for dinner? That's when they're going to make the decision, but it's not the way to build a solid customer base, to build brand visibility and to build brand loyalty. People are really looking for something that they can integrate into their lifestyles. That's why people have brand loyalty to begin with. And that is where the strategy comes in. It's not just about I need to make this great product and tell everybody I've got a great product. It's also about why is this great? How is this going to change your lifestyle? How is it going to make it easier for you to reach your goals of being healthier, to make less of an impact on the environment if that's something you want to do? People need to see that there is a benefit and also that this is easy and beneficial to put into their daily lifestyle, not just I need a meatless burger, this one's cheapest, so I'm going to buy it. It, it. So it becomes a strategy and a story thing instead of just trying to hit what you think the consumer wants. So again, a lot to unpack, story, right? So you, you guys need to tell a story, right? So it's here it's about really uh, shaping mindset and, and it's not about a transactional uh, product that, that is being created, right? People want to get the buy-in by feeling part of something you're saying. So it need to be, it need to be clear, right? What are the benefits of it, right? What, why we are doing this? They need to embrace this story. They need to say, I want to be part of this. And a story becomes a mission, right? Uh, and again, I mean, this, you were so uh, uh, saying that there is a lot of content about the content, right? And we are right now creating more content about the content, right? But at the end of the day, it's challenging, right? This was, this is what you see, what you read on a website, on an ad, right? Or, or on a package, which maybe sound clear is uh, the effort of uh, converting complexity into simplicity, right? And not many people have this skill, right so it's it's very fine nuanced approach especially if you are into something that is innovative and shapes um and shapes habits right um uh, what i mean the word content means a lot right i mean like 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 a lot of it, right so what are maybe maybe from a i'm just not putting myself in a, in a, in a shoe of somebody who listens and has a startup what files right uh, well, file types, maybe, would you suggest 
or content strategy types based on files? Would you suggest for a startup that, you know, is an alternative protein and would like to increase on one then awareness, but by driving traffic on their on their on their blog, so optimizing search engine optimization. Is there are there any hacks or 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 method that you would like to share here? It can be highly individual depending on the company and what they want to achieve. Today, obviously, video is highly consumed and video content is the way to engage people, especially on mobile. Um, and it, I tend to also still advocate written content because especially in these, these next gen protein companies, it's still very new to the vast majority of consumers. I mean, we're in the plant-based space, so we're more familiar with it, but they have almost an untapped opportunity to be educators of consumers. So doing long form pillar content, doing guide content, these like these ultimate guides that people can download and take with them and read later, people really do like a deep dive. And that also gives a lot of opportunity to take that content, repurpose it into social media posts for people who are in more of a hurry, repurpose it into videos, repurpose it into audio for podcasts. So I would say, get your strategy right, and you'll know from there what your audience is consuming. But if you need to just kind of get something up there that people are going to look at, I would say, look at video, but don't neglect your long form, your long form written content either. That's very big. Like you were talking search engine optimization. That is where the traffic comes from is getting that out there and building that thought leadership and making, making people associate your brand with this body of knowledge that they already want because people are going to be looking for the knowledge before they're looking for the product and once they find the product they're going to want to know that it's coming from somebody that isn't just trying to sell them something that is actually trying to bring them into that experience and show them the benefit of spending this money and making this lifestyle change i love it sam so it's not about selling right it's about creating trust long term a long format which which I, I guess it's something over whatever is over 750 words right so it's not the short short format right we write something around 2000 2500 words so long format is relevant to increase the awareness and to convey a message right in video is even though it's difficult for many right but video is something that that people uh, really enjoy nowadays right marina I want to get back again here to culture um, and meat and your experience uh, and what you have learned with the podcast, what you have uh, heard, right? I mean, there are alternatives to cultured meat, right? We hear it all the times, right? Uh, what are your thoughts here on uh, on uh, what are the most important hurdles for cultured meat to gain actually scale today? Yeah. So, I mean, I was beforehand trying to explain the importance of the industry and that I think it's for a lot of people quite unexpected how this will grow. And I see this, the cultured meat industry to be just as imp impactful as many of the tech companies that we know of, like Airbnb. Um, to completely turn our food industry upside down because it's not just meat, it is dairy, um, it is gelatin, it is pretty much anything that is uh, animal-derived but also non-animal-derived. Therefore, the hurdles are first and foremost, I would say, three to four. The first one is industry lobbying. Let's keep to meat as an example. The food industry is the largest lobby in the world. Um, 
In Brussels, you have about 30,000 registered lobbyists, and more than half of these are directly related to the food industry. So if corporations actually want to stop this, I think there is quite a risk that at the very least they can make it extremely hard uh, to bring this, this on to market in certain areas of the world easier than others. For example, in Germany, I know it will probably be quite a bit of, of a hassle. Now, the second thing is the missing funding. And this has gotten better over the years, but you can imagine cultured meat is in between two fields of research, food tech, and on the other hand, med tech. And because it doesn't really belong to one area, it's a bit harder for scientists to get funding in the field. And also they need to refer to existing scientific literature to propose uh, their funding topics. But over the last years, there has been relatively little scientific research done in the specific area of creating um, cultured uh, meat for human consumption uh, and not for organ transplants, etc. So organizations like New Harvest are really critical in pushing this forward because they are doing this basic research um, to enable the industry to grow. And with the lack of public funding, comes a side effect that we start seeing. And that's that most of the companies working in cultured meat, they had to start with basic research because there wasn't much official research out there. And they got, uh, some of them got a lot of private patents in crucial areas. So it becomes increasingly harder for companies to actually get a foot in the door and build from ground up new cultured meat companies. This creates a huge benefit for the ones that have the patents, like for example, Blue Nalu, because they, have, uh, they make it harder for people to enter the market and uh, they make it very attractive to investors to invest in them because of their IP. The, but this, will ha this may have long-term consequences for, for the industry and its growth. And um, the last thing, um, the third thing is the consumer acceptance. Cultured meat is just perfect for conspiracy theories. It's the perfect breeding ground for all sorts of stories. And for example, it's interesting how different it is in cultures over the world. In Japan, consumers, the, according to one of my interview guests, uh, the CEO of Integrity Culture, he is saying that the consumers are afraid of the meat coming alive and eating them. Uh, and that's something that's very impacted by the uh, manga and anime culture. So it's like Frankenstein meat. Whereas in Singapore, according to the CEO um, of Shiok Meats, uh, the acceptance rate is rather high. And so we will see cultural differences that are also highly influenced by the naming. Um, in Germany, for example, you call it in vitro meat, and that's the most common term that it is referred to. And it's in inherently repulsive. Nobody wants to eat in vitro something or even cellular something, we, we need, we have a serious branding issue that, that we need to overcome. And also we need to overcome, uh, avoid the association with GMOs. No matter what you think about GMOs, uh, they have a horrible branding and connecting cultured meat and GMOs uh, could be a big pitfall. 
And that's the reason we why we have Sam today with us because she's going to solve some of this, right, Sam? <laughs> we need to be clear and make it more appeal, right? Marina, thank you so much for drilling down these, uh, these uh, three, four aspects. Very intrigued. Me, you have seen a lot of uh, ESG deals. You run a department you're in charge of uh, ESG investment that does a research and, and, and engagement. Um, I'd be curious to uh, pick your brain share it with our audience here to understand those who claim to be ESG ready or on track, right? What are your thoughts on this? How, how are you? <laughs> I, think, I think it varies dramatically um, between companies, but also between regions. You know, for, for us in Asia, the whole region is, is quite a little bit behind um, places like, you know, Europe, obviously. And that has a lot to do with regulation just you know government regulation as well as stock exchanges they also have a role for listed companies but it is picking up and i, I say definitely within asia is moving very very quickly probably a lot of it's out of need because especially if you're imp uh, exporting to places like the eu you can't on, on certain uh things like you know pesticide usage you know there are certain levels that you have to adhere to and and certifications and things like that. So it's out of necessity that you're going to have to do this if you're going to be a global player. But within, you know, um, the region itself, companies who just supply and, and ship and then do business within the region or within domestically only, domestic focused, it is a little bit more challenging if there isn't regulation in place that pushes them or forces their hand. So a lot of our work in engagement is to go out there and try to convince them that it's actually in their best interest. Um, it helps a lot with multinational, having multinationals to benchmark against. Um, and a lot of all of these things, all this movement and all these pressures on, on firms and companies is really coming. We're seeing a lot of it is actually from consumers. They're asking for this. And, you know, you were saying before, Tommaso, like, how is this going to, you know, how is this movement going to grow? How are you going to convince people, right? It's a challenge. How are you going to get consumers to, to stay in the game and, and really, you know, support this in the long run? And I think actually, you know, the new generation of consumers is very, quite socially aware, definitely environmentally aware. The idea of climate change and all of its impacts there, you know, it's, you cannot open the paper or, or read the news without seeing something about sustainability or environmental climate change, right? Every single day, there's something about that. They're very aware of the risks and they're very aware of how their consumption links to that. So I'm, I'm not fearful of that. The consumer is, is quite aware, but there's always very, a big gap between your awareness and what you ideally intend to do versus where you actually put your dollar, right? And that also comes down to like, you know, certain demographics as well, because obviously in Asia, there are countries where, you know, they don't, the annual income, the average income per capita is quite low still. So especially when we talk about protein, it's affordability is a very big issue. And the challenge then is to come go to the companies who are producing and manufacturing these cheaper foods, these animal products, you know, large scale factory farming for high productivity and higher yield and trying to convince them that, you know, to invest some more money into changing their uh, production systems to make it more environmentally friendly, you know, greater animal welfare issues like this, less deforestation. Yeah, how you do that? How do you convince them to do that when they turn around and say to you that actually that's going to cost me money and therefore I've got to pass it on to the consumer? And my, you know, my customer segment cannot afford that. And a lot of that, a lot of the time, that is actually true. That is definitely a challenge 
in, in this space um, at the very low end of it. Obviously, if you're talking about things like Impossible Meat or Impossible Burger or beyond something that is, is, is sold into an urban environment where there's greater affordability, that is a less of an issue. But, you know, you have other challenges there, obviously. Yeah, so to stay healthy, nutritional and have an end-to-end -end sustainable really food chain uh, pricing is a, is, a, is a huge issue that, that definitely uh, needs to be solved. And, and, and partially with the acceptance, obviously, of the topic of, of, a, of the sustainable protein, right? Uh, the new normal protein, right? And even want to call it <laughs> anything that you know, that offends the word, right, the, uh, a protein, right? So, so it's, it's going maybe to, to solve that, right? So thank you so much, V, for sharing. And, uh, and Marina, Sam, and V, we could talk for hours about this topic, right? But I want to be respectful of everybody's time, and we're getting almost to uh, the end of our 15th episode. And um, I see here that our editorial team has already selected three questions from our audience that I would like basically to run through. We have one each, um, starting here with Karen from NYC, actually for, for Sam. Uh, uh, Karen is asking Sam, why is the adoption of environmentally friendly foods from consumers so slow, considering all the existing sustainability problems and the potential benefits? Thanks, uh, Karen, for uh, Sam. Take it from here. I think that comes down to education again. I mean, being a content strategist, being a content creator, that is going to be where my brain goes, but just having been a health coach as well, again, we're running in plant the run we're running in the plant-based circles. And a lot of people who are interested in this topic are already running in the plant-based circles. But I also get a very interesting window into what's going on in the average consumer's mind in for two two reasons. One, because I was a health coach. And two, because I actually also do member work at my local co-op once a week. So I see the consumer who is the health conscious consumer, the consumer who is maybe already leaning a little more towards plant-based, but that consumer segment is still confused about GMOs. They're still confused about organic and they're still confused about local. I kid you not, we had someone ask about local oranges. I'm in upstate New York. We have no local oranges. So we have people who understand that they're supposed to be doing something, but they don't know how. And then you go to the average consumer who isn't plant-based, who isn't thinking about plant-based, who has a few kids, they have, you know, even if they just have, if they have it just like them and a spouse and they don't have any kids, they're just trying to feed themselves. And the health information out there is so conflicting. They're already so confused about what's healthy. They're not even thinking about what's sustainable. They're still asking how to cook kale correctly so that their family will eat it. So what it comes down to again is, is that education and taking those steps. Because if you go to somebody who doesn't know how, how to make rice so that their family will enjoy it and tell them, by the way, sustainability and carbon footprints and all, they'll just kind of look at you and be like, I can't handle this. So it's that we got to take it a step at a time. And I think sometimes, honestly, we even need to pull back a little bit because we have this information. We really want to share it, but the people need to be ready for it. And then they'll start to take the information that they now understand and make those choices that are going to be, well, like you were just talking about affordable. That's going to be a big thing, but affordable to fit their lifestyle and that also meet their own personal standards based on 
information that they can actually process. So education is key. Thank you so much, Sam, and thanks, Karen, for asking. And uh, the next one is uh, Carol, Carol from, uh, well, San Francisco. Carol, thanks for, for asking. This one is for V, Carol for V. How do companies like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods really, how do companies like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods really rate today from an ESG perspective? In general, do you observe signs of positive change in the industry? Thanks, Carol, for we. So what do you think about ESG alignment of, let's be politically correct, right? We're alive. <laughs> Look, I think that they're, they're very well marketed, extremely well marketed. Uh, you know, in, in Asia, they're, they're expanding quite quickly out here. And definitely, uh, you know, I've seen in the last couple of years, you know, it was non-existent, this whole idea of plant-based anything to impossibles on every menu. And it, it's working. And I think, you know, look, they're playing in a space where they're creating an alternative, you know, for people who want to to try the product who may not be vegetarians or vegans or anything like that. And I think that that's already a positive, you know, however you look at it. I mean, there's other issues about how, and, and they, you know, what they put into the ingredients and their process, et cetera, and, and the resources they use up, we could argue about that. But at the end of the day, I think that is so, it's, we are still at the beginning, the very early stages of this movement and it will only improve. So I think that if consumers voice their concerns the formulations will change. The companies will improve. They have to, to, to be responsive, right? Um, and to grow their business. And we are seeing that they already are doing that. Um, so I think it's, I, I wouldn't judge them too harshly, but I think, you know, they have the capacity always like as, as any company does to can for continual improvement, to, re, to be responsive to your, your customers and, and their needs. And, and definitely, you know, this idea of like a greater nutritional value in the food that we eat, that is also, of a great concern and, and, and consumers are being much more aware about that but it takes like um, Sam said a lot more education for us to get there and, and it is always a, a, also a challenge right to or easy to point at the bigger brands right especially those yeah. you know uh, walking the first footstep in the snow right and creating a new territory right so yeah yeah Nothing. I mean yeah you got to give them credit for for establishing the supply chain right to, for yeah. you know strengthening it yeah. so that others can can get on board and, and then diversify so yeah i don't have a problem i don't have a problem with that <laughs> well um, thank you so much v and carol from san francisco thanks for uh, the question and now last but not least julia asking marina how soon could we consider next gen proteins um, a viable alternative to slaughtered animals can we dream about a world without animal cruelty what are your thoughts marina thanks julia for asking well, I think we, um, there is a saying in the cultured meat industry that it will always take about five more years. And that has been going on for a couple of years where it always takes five more years, but this is uh, continuing um, over the time. Now we are starting to actually see movement that companies are going to market. And I would say um, within the next two to three years, um, we will have products on the shelves Possibly that's a bold statement. Um, I think this is really extremely crucial because I personally have a rather controversial opinion that consumer awareness is not the number one way to go about it. Um, I think the, it's just human psychology to go for the easiest thing. 
and um, therefore we need to provide a way for people to have their cake and eat it too, to have their meat uh, without have this having a detrimental effect to our environment. And this is where I see cultured meat going. And also with an eye on the red to green uh, solution season on plastic waste, um, it's quite fascinating that the focus on uh, individual contribution has been pushed, for example, by the plastic industry saying, well, if people recycle, then the system will be fixed. No, the, the companies need to be held responsible. There need to be alternative solutions that are pushed by regulation. There, need to be, uh, there needs to be the focus on reuse or refuse, reduce and not as much on, on recycle. That's very controversial. We go to, into that in the season, why that is the case. Um, and here also with, with cultured meat and plant-based, I think we don't have the time for, to wait for people to change um, because in Asia and in China, uh, uh, in China, for example, and in India, the, the amount of meat consumed is going up and globally it's going up. Therefore, we need cultured meat to be on the market as soon as possible. And I think it's gonna be huge it's going to be exciting. And right now, if anybody is interested to work in the field, right now is the time to get into it. You guys heard it. Right now is the time uh, to make an impact. So join this uh, movement, this important mission. Thank you so much, Julia, for asking. And Marina, thanks for, for your reply. And uh, this is it for today, November 19th. Um, actually, I would like to end the broadcast with one visionary question question more from a future back perspective i would like to ask v marina and sam how do you think are we going to eat by 2050 what's your vision there what's the uh, food system like what are your thoughts on this from a future back perspective let's go nuts <laughs> i think we will have a more decentralized system where we use vertical farming much more and it's growing at the moment like crazy. Um, I think in the Western world uh, and, and in hot spots like Singapore and uh, Japan and so on, there will be uh, cultured meat available in the supermarkets at affordable prices with a tendency to soon become more affordable than conventional meat. Um, I hope very much that the food that we will eat will be packaged in different uh, ways. There will be industrial composting facilities to manage bioplastics and uh, lots of compostable alternatives or loop systems. So returnable, several, uh, returnable systems where you can use packaging several times. So it is a holistic view also including regenerative agriculture that hopefully by that time will be uh, quite big. I love it. Maria, thank you so much for this outlook, for your vision in 2050. Sam, what's your vision? It's November 2050. How are we going to eat? Well, if you'd permit me to pipe dream a little bit, I'd like to see us all eating more plants. This is the health coach in me. I am excited at, about the, uh, the next-gen protein movement. I'm excited about a lot of the startups that are out there. I have, I have friends who, who do plant-based food. But frankly, I would like to see that by 2050, we've actually caught on to the fact that food is medicine. This is this like right now we're establishing the framework for people to make that transition. And I'd like to see the next trajectory in my mind is these brands 
especially the big ones that we were talking about, they've got a lot of clout already, taking the next step and concerning about the health. Okay, you've got people, they're interested. Now is the health thing. And I'd say by 2050, please let us be using food as medicine. I'd love to see doctors prescribing food as medicine and people understanding the real connection, not just having an inkling, but the real connection of if I eat this, it has direct consequences on my health, on my family's health, and then of course on the health of this world that God gave us to take care of. And so that we have that entire trajectory in people's minds. It's not difficult to do. It's not not feeling like a big burden. We just do it and it's normal. I love it. Nutritional, let's go to the doctor to uh, order something that is good for our body. Thank you so much, Sam, for that vision. And now last but not least, V, what are your, what's your vision for 2050? What's this food system like? What is mankind going to eat? I think it's, um, you know, I, I live in Singapore, so I'm seeing a lot of this already. It's going to be a lot more urban farming, for sure, you know, centered around the, the city centers. Um, people are going to start growing their own vegetables and edibles on their balconies, that kind of idea. I mean, it's, it's, it's already, you know, lockdown has already got us all doing that. I think also that, yeah, I, I echo what Sam said and, and hope that we're going to be much more health conscious and and everything we eat is going to be about the nutritional content. Consumers are going to be very wary and, and con- conscious about that. And the f- I think it's, a, it's going to be about biodiversity and diversity. And we're going to bring back some of those forgotten foods that already have this. Um, this going to, I think it's going to be polarized almost. It's going to be one movement where we're looking to create that nutritional value and with formulations and mixtures and combinations. And then the other side of it is we're going to bring back the, the the kind of crops that, you know, we don't cultivate as much on scale anymore. They're forgotten, but they have that already existing. So I think there's going to be a kind of a, a polarization in movement. But um, yeah, I think nutrition is going to be key, but also the, the diversity and, and giving optionality to consumers. I think we're already seeing that in the plant-based movement. Diversity, optionality as well. I love this perspective too. Well, thank you so much. And uh, this is it for today. And I appreciate that very much. I love always learning. That's my mission. Every single day, learning something that I didn't know. Thank you for allowing us to pick uh, uh, your brains. V, Teresa Marina, I loved it. Thanks for your time. I know it's pretty late. V, Marina, it's in the afternoon. Sam, we have a still a day um, in, in, in front of us. I always used to end the broadcast with a quote that I learned to craft over the last 20 years. That's the reason why I call it my quote. That's I invented it, which goes like this. Never forget where you come from. It keeps you humble. But where you come from cannot limit you where you want to go. And with that, thank you so much for tuning in. Again, V, Sam and Marina, thanks for uh, joining us. Stay in touch. I'll see you soon. You take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.